All right, we're going to get going here if you guys want to have a seat, and I will pray, and uh, we'll start. Father, thank you so much for this day. Uh, thank you for the grace that woke each of us up this morning. Uh, thank you specifically for this morning that we can celebrate your body and blood. And thank you for the people being baptized this morning as a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. And I thank you that this morning, Father, we get to look at the covenant that they are being baptized to affiliate themselves with and that we can look at um, that and that we can receive your body and your blood that you instituted the new covenant with. Thanks for all these things and I pray your blessing on this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Can I get a volunteer to hand out these handouts? Thank you. Those are just notes from this week's slides. And then... Am I on here, Jason? All good. One? Uh, no. Oh, wait. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Let's see here. Yes, perfect. Alrighty. So, today, we are starting in the New Testament. So, if you remember last time, we looked at the writings which kind of go all over the Old Testament canon. And we ended with the return from exile uh, with Ezra and Nehemiah. And so now the people were back in the land at the end of the Old Testament. And today... So, yeah, the writings gave wisdom and models for prayer and uh, narrative. Uh, the narrative followed the Jews in exile in the story of their return to Israel by God's grace. And the writings were full of prophetic imagery and language and things that uh, foretold a king who would come and rule over God's covenant people and make a new covenant. And just a helpful reminder before we go into the new covenant, the Gospels, uh, these, are, these are main things that we're expecting by the time we get there that the scriptures are expecting. And I say that the scriptures are expecting because the Jews actually weren't necessarily expecting these things as they ought to have been. But this is certainly what the scriptures as a whole uh, are anticipating out of the new covenant. So the restoration of the Garden of Eden, there's so much stuff pointing that one day we'll be back to that state. Uh, the offspring of Abraham is going to bless all nations. So somebody from Abraham's family, Israel, will bless everybody, not just Israel. A prophet like Moses who's going to lead God's people in obedience to the law and take them out of Egypt, uh, this massive exodus, but this time out of sin and slavery to sin and death. Uh, we're looking for a king on David's line, from David's line to rule over God's people forever with perfect justice. And God's going to do something new, a new covenant to make his people love him and give them new hearts to obey. So to start us off, I can't believe it's actually working. This morning I checked. We got a video from... The Bible Project that I think is just great to show the connections here and get us started. Does somebody want to get the lights? The news. If you open up a Bible to the table, so you'll see it's made up of two large collections, all in the New Testament. The word testament refers to a covenant partnership, which is what both of these collections are all about. They tell one epic and complicated story of God's covenant partnership with Israel and all humanity. The Old Testament is called Tanakh in Jewish tradition. It's a unified scroll collection of 39 Israelite texts that were over a thousand years in the making. 
In contrast, the 27 books of the New Testament all came into existence within 30 to 40 years of each other. They were all written by first-generation followers of Jesus. From an early period, Christian communities began collecting these texts and reading them alongside the Old Testament as one unified story that leads to Jesus. The New Testament begins with four narrative books that together are called the Gospel. They tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth's life, death, and resurrection as an announcement of good news. They're followed by a fifth narrative work called the Acts of the Apostles. Here, the risen Jesus commissions the apostles, the word that means the sent ones. They're appointed as Jesus' representatives to spread the good news about him throughout the ancient world. After Acts comes a collection of letters from the apostles. These were written to provide teaching and guidance for local communities of Jesus' followers called churches. There are 13 letters connected to the Apostle Paul, and they're not arranged in the order of when they were written, but rather from the longest to the shortest. Then there's a letter to the Hebrews, written by a close but unnamed associate of the Apostles. After this are the letters of James, Jude, Peter, and John. Two were brothers of Jesus, and two were among his first followers. The last New Testament book is the Revelation, a letter to seven churches that reveals a prophetic word of challenge and comfort to all of Jesus' followers. So those are the books of the New Testament. But what are they about? And how do they connect with the Old Testament to make up one unified story? Think of it this way. The Bible is one long epic narrative with multiple movements or acts. The Old Testament recounts the first series of acts that give you everything you need to make sense of the story to follow. The core themes and the plot conflict are arranged in design patterns. And then in the New Testament, these are all picked up and carried forward to the story's culmination in Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. The first act is about God and all humanity. God provides a sweet garden temple for humans who are made to be God's partners in ruling the world. But the humans are foolish, and they get into a dark temptation and rebel against God's wisdom. So they're exiled into a wilderness where they start killing each other. They build cities that spread their selfishness and oppression, leading up to the big bad city of Babylon. But God loves the world and its foolish humans, so he sets in motion a rescue plan by promising the arrival of a new human who will destroy the evil that has lured us into self-destruction. The next act of the biblical story is about God and Israel, and it develops the themes and patterns of the first act. God calls a new humanity out of Babylon into a sweet garden land. Abraham, Sarah, and his descendants, the Israelites. God promises that through them, divine blessing will be restored to all of the nations. Surely these are the new humans that we're waiting for, but the Israelites repeat humanity's rebellion against God, building their own violent cities that lead to self-destruction and another exile of Babylon. But God sustains his promise that the new human will come from Abraham's lineage. It will be a priest king who will now have to rescue both Israel and humanity from Babylon to restore God's blessing to the world. Now, notice how these two acts are designed according to the same pattern. The second act is a longer and more violent version of the first, and together they explore the tragic human condition, but they also highlight God's promise, which is developed more in the next act, the Old Testament prophets and poets. The prophets accused Israel and all nations of their evil, and they announced that one day God himself would arrive to bring the day of the Lord and deliver his world from battle. He would do it through a promised royal priest, who's going to suffer like a slave and die for the sins of Israel and all humanity, but then he'll be exalted as king over the nations. He will call others to leave Babylon and join the new covenant people, who will partner with God to rule over a new Jerusalem, that is, over a new creation. And so the Old Testament concludes by anticipating a new act in the story. 
And when you turn to the New Testament, it's the same story now being carried forward in Jesus. Let's see how. The four gospel accounts introduce Jesus of Nazareth, both as the promised son of Abraham who will restore God's blessing to the nations, and also as that new human who will defeat evil and restore humanity to partnership. So Jesus is portrayed as human and more. He went about announcing the arrival of God's promised kingdom, and he spoke and acted as if he was Israel's divine king. But instead of calling himself king, Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, that is, the human one who would act like a servant. The Gospels are making the claim that in Jesus, Israel's God has become the faithful Israelite and the true human that we are all made to be but have failed. Jesus' mission was to confront that dark evil that lurks underneath humanity's evil, luring us into selfishness, violence, and death. But how do you defeat that kind of evil? The surprising answer in the Gospels is that Jesus overcame our evil by allowing it to kill him on his paradoxical throne, the cross, where Jesus died for humanity's evil and sin. And it's where he lived out what he taught, that nonviolence, forgiveness, and self-given love are the most powerful things in the and because God's love for his world is stronger than evil and death, Jesus was raised to new life as the prototype of a new humanity. And this brings us to the story of Acts. Through the Spirit, God empowers Jesus' followers to spread the life and love of Jesus out into the world as they invite people to leave their old humanity and join Jesus' multi-ethnic family, the new humanity. This is where the letters from the apostles fit into the story. Here the apostles address early Christian communities and they show how the good news about the risen King Jesus changed history and should reshape every part of our lives. They also explained the good news by constantly appealing to stories from the Old Testament and the stories of Jesus, showing us how to see our own life stories as part of the epic biblical story. So all humanity is trapped in a Babylonian exile, but Jesus came to create a new home. We're all living in different kinds of Egyptian slavery to selfishness, sin, but Jesus died as the Passover lamb to liberate us into the promised land. Our old humanity is bound for the dust of death, but Jesus' resurrection opened up a new future for a new humanity. We live here in the current evil age, but through Jesus and the Spirit, a new creation has burst open here and now. And this leads us to the book of Revelation, where the whole biblical story comes together in powerful symbolism and imagery. Jesus is portrayed as a slaughtered, bloody lamb who is exalted as the divine king of the world. He's leading his people out of slavery and exile in Babylon. And as they resist Babylon's influence, they may have to suffer alongside their slain leader. But when you follow the risen king, not even death can prevent the dawn of the new creation, which is here depicted as a new Jerusalem garden temple, the true home of humanity after its long exile. And so on the Bible's last page, heaven and earth are reunited and the new humans take up their appointed task from the Bible's first page to rule the world together in the love and power of God. The New Testament is a remarkable collection of documents. They represent the testimony of the apostles that points us to the risen Jesus himself. And through God's Spirit, these human words have been speaking a divine word of hope from the first century to the 21st. Each book shows how God, through Jesus and the Spirit, is leading our world to its ultimate goal in a renewed creation. And so the story's end is really the beginning of a new story that is yet to be told. And that's what the New Testament is all about. Perfect. Somebody get the lights back on, please. Thank you. <laughs>
Yeah, that's a really helpful synopsis of the whole New Testament. Um, these guys have some really good video on their website and on YouTube, The Bible Project. I'd recommend it. So today specifically in the New Testament, like I said, we are going to look at the Gospels. So compared to like almost every other time we've done this class, today we only have four books to look at. So we actually have a lot of breathing room today, which is quite nice. But next time we don't have as much breathing room because next time we have Acts and Epistles. So the context of the Gospels. So what's the world like by the time we're in the Gospels? So the Jews are under Roman rule. Between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there were different empires that ruled and oppressed the Jewish people as well. And by the time we get to the Gospels, we're under Roman rule. And this is the most powerful uh, dominion that there's ever been in human history. They conquered the whole known world. If you lived at that time, you just thought that Rome ruled Everything, everywhere where there was land and people, because everywhere you knew existed, Rome had authority. And so there were expectations of the Messiah that he was going to come like any time now. It was a very, very ripe time for the Messiah to come because you have all of these promises from the Old Testament, all of this tension, and right now the people are being oppressed again. And so they're just looking forward for that one king to come and liberate them from their oppression under Roman rule. And that kind of affects the expectations for a Messiah. So they weren't exactly expecting what we do find in the Gospels. They were, because of their context, expecting a political leader who was going to come and overthrow the Romans and set up the kingdom in Israel again and make Israel the most powerful kingdom on earth. And that really affects how the Jews reacted to Christ in the Gospels. So the four Gospels. Who? Jesus Christ and his 12 apostles and the Romans and the Jews, a bunch of other characters, but that's the main characters. Uh, What? Jesus, the Son of God, become flesh to teach us how to be human and take our place on the cross, rising again to destroy sin. Uh, Where? Israel under Roman rule. When? 30 to 33 CE. So the Gospels, if you sat down and read them, you could almost get the impression that they happened in about a week. And actually, most of John's gospel did happen with a very short period of time. But the gospels generally take place over three years of time. So this is the 12 apostles and the disciples following Jesus around for his whole earthly ministry, which lasted three years. So gospel means good news. So it's the good news that God's Messiah has come uh, for the nations. And the purpose of the gospels is to record The birth and ministry, sayings, miracles, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to testify to the world what he has done. And why is there four Gospels? Why couldn't we just have one and it tells us about Jesus' life and that's good enough? The reason that there's four Gospels is because the authors are trying to prove something uh, in their Gospels. So Luke wrote Luke to prove certain things about Jesus. So he's going to emphasize certain sayings of Jesus and tell certain stories of Jesus and leave certain ones out. Uh, John wrote John to prove something different about Jesus. So he's going to leave some things out and put in some other things that Luke maybe didn't put in and put things in different orders and emphasize things. And they're not showing two different Jesuses. They're just showing it's like different, different facets of the same diamond. They're just looking at Jesus from different perspectives, uh, his ministry to the world, uh, how, how God is related to the world in Jesus. And just a clarification note before we get going. The gospel versus the gospels. Uh, So the four gospels that are in your New Testament, they're not the gospel. So the gospel is the stone cold hard facts about 
Humanity's fallen from God. We need a Savior to bring us back to God. And that happens in Jesus through his taking our place on the cross and rising again. The Gospels are how God did that. They're the narrative. They're the historical telling of what God did in Jesus to accomplish that. And so one way to think of it is the Gospels tell, or the Gospels tell the Gospel. So I hope that makes sense so we just aren't saying Gospel a bunch. And I thought we preached the Gospel last week. We didn't even touch this book. Okay. Starting in Matthew. So the audience of Matthew, the people that Matthew is tailored to, are the Jews who are expecting their Messiah. Uh, and the way that Matthew presents Jesus, he's uh, the king of the Jews who fulfills the law and the prophets. So Matthew emphasizes a lot of certain things to make sure Jews will see it and go, oh, that's, that's fulfilling something from our scriptures. Uh, I, we were expecting that. I didn't think of it necessarily that way, but he's right. That is what the scriptures are saying. So yeah, purpose to show that Jesus is in fact the true Messiah uh, and to validate Jesus from a Jewish perspective. So that's why in Matthew it starts out with a genealogy. There's a lot of typology. So there's Jesus doing the same things and kinds of things Moses did, but better. Uh, And these are all supposed to appeal to Jews. Uh, There's a lot of mentions of Jewish customs that Gentiles probably weren't familiar with in the day. That's how we know it was written for a very Jewish audience. Uh, And the emphasis of Matthew is the teachings of Jesus. So let's go to Matthew 5. Let's go to Matthew 5. And can somebody read verse 17 and 18? Matthew 5, 17 to 18, please. Thank you. So that's important because, like I said, Matthew focuses super heavily on Jesus' teaching. It's just mostly Jesus' teaching. Um, And especially chapter 5 displays what I'm about to get into here. But the reason Jesus said that is because he comes to elevate the law. That's like the thrust of Jesus' teaching in Matthew. So, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, you have heard that uh, if you... Uh, sleep with another woman, that's adultery. But I tell you, if you even lust after her with your eye, right? So he's not saying, I'm here to do away with the law. He's actually elevating it. He's showing what the true Jew should have looked like, what it actually looks like to be a faithful Jew and follow the law in reality. Because the Pharisees at the time, the religious leaders at the time, they followed the law meticulously, but it was all external. It wasn't internal. So even though on paper you couldn't get them, internally it was obvious that they weren't... They weren't uh, there we go. Internally, it was obvious that they weren't in relationship with God. But Jesus just takes that rug from under their feet. He says, no, you can't just be external. So that's the thrust emphasis of Matthew, what it focuses on. Mark. So the audience to Mark is Jews and Gentiles. So anybody who will hear the message. And the presentation of Jesus in Mark is as the suffering servant. Uh, so this corrects misunderstandings of what people expected the Messiah to be like. So remember, I was saying, since they were under Roman rule, people were expecting the Messiah to be a great political leader who would just come in, take over, ask questions later. Uh, but that's not how Mark presents Jesus. It's, it's meant to show the people, no, this is what the Messiah is supposed to do. 
Uh, so can we go to Mark 8? Mark chapter 8. And somebody read 31 to 33 of Mark chapter 8. 31 to 33. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Thank you. Right, so we see here Jesus sometime in his earthly ministry starts going, actually the Son of Man, the Messiah, is supposed to suffer first. And Peter, a Jew, says, far be it from you, Lord, right? You're not going to suffer. You're the Messiah. And that shows that even his closest followers were expecting all of the wrong things. They were just shocked and in disbelief when Jesus said he had to suffer and die first. But then what does Jesus say? Yeah, get behind me, Satan. You're not focusing on the things of God. So they should have known, actually, that Jesus was going to die And if you were here last time, you remember me saying that the Jews actually expected several characters to fulfill all of the things promised in the Old Testament, but they thought that the Messiah would be this one pinnacle head who would, you know, liberate them from whatever oppression they'd be under at the time. This is probably why they weren't expecting Jesus to die. It's not like they didn't have a category in their mind for someone who was going to come and suffer. They, They were familiar with Isaiah 53 and the servant Psalms and all of those things. Um, but they weren't necessarily expecting one man to fulfill all of those things. So when one guy comes and he says he's the Messiah and you're expecting him to overthrow the government, but then he starts saying he has to suffer and you're not necessarily connecting those two things because of the way they were reading the Old Testament at the time, that's maybe why it was so surprising to them. So the purpose of Mark to its intended audience is to call the reader to follow the death march of Jesus, uh, death to self, Uh, but living for others, so sacrificial service. And if you kept reading in Mark 8, he would have said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the Gospel of Mark is really fast. You'll be exhausted if you sit down and read it all at once. Like, bam, 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 Jesus just serving others, serving others, serving others. He has to die. The Son of Man must suffer. And that's inviting us to be like Christ and lay down our lives. And the emphasis is, like I said, massive emphasis on Jesus' servanthood and works and authority. The gospel is just full of repetitions of Jesus doing different miracles, showing his divine authority. Luke. So the audience, the gospel of Luke was written by a Gentile, Luke. He was a physician for Gentiles. Uh, Actually, if you were not going to, but if you read the first verses of Luke, it's, it's written to a ruler at the time named Theophilus. Uh, and so Luke says, this is written so that you may know the reason for your faith kind of thing. It's an orderly account. So the presentation of Jesus in Luke, he's the savior of all nations in Luke, uh, not just come for the Jews. Matthew was tailored for the Jewish people to clue in and go, that's the Messiah. And Luke is meant to display this Messiah has come and he's for all nations and all kinds of people. Uh, go to Luke 4. Luke 4 and read... Somebody read for me 17 and 19 in Luke 4, please.
Thank you. So Jesus is in the synagogue, which was like a Jewish church, pretty much you can think of it like back then. And he opens the scroll and he reads this from Isaiah. And he says, I'm here to fulfill it. And so the Messiah has come to bring deliverance and relief for all kinds of people, not just the elite, not just the religious Jews, not just the high up there, but for all nations and all kinds of people. The purpose of Luke, uh, one main purpose of Luke is, like I said, to give an orderly account of the life of Christ. Luke actually wasn't there for these things. He goes around after interviewing people and he puts, he tries his best to put these things in order and just give a really firm, this is what happened. I talked to the eyewitnesses and now I'm writing what I found to you, Theophilus, and all of us Gentiles so that, so you can know about the life of Christ. And the emphasis, like I said, is the historical account of Jesus Christ's life. So, if this wants to switch. There we go. <laughs> so those were the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that just means they're the same. They're a synopsis of Jesus' life. They tell about his life from mostly the same perspective, even though, like we saw, they do have different emphases. And they just cover mostly the same events and the same time frame and things like that. So they're considered kind of as a unit. And the Gospel of John is actually pretty different from them. It covers a lot of different territory. So the audience of John is Jews and Gentiles alike. There's a lot of things, even in the first chapter of John, that are very appealing to Jewish people, language that Jewish people would pick up on and really appreciate. But at the same time, it's written so... If you read it as a Gentile, you wouldn't be confused and you'd also be able to appreciate it for what it is. Uh, and the presentation of Jesus in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is God Almighty. Like right from the first verse of John, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. John wants his audience to know that this Messiah who's come, he is the God of Israel in the flesh now. So the Messiah that Yahweh promised to send to us to liberate us from sin and death to live perfectly, to give us new hearts, Yahweh's going to do that himself because nobody else could do that except, except God. The purpose of the Gospel of John, go to John 20. John 20, and somebody read verses 30 and 31. Scene. So like we read there, the Gospel of John is meant to inspire belief in whoever's reading it. It's meant to invite them, believe in this Jesus. Many times in the Gospel, Jesus is just inviting people to himself to believe in him. He's saying, I'll draw all people onto myself. Uh, here's what I am for you. It just gives you very many things about Christ to cling to. It's like he's promises embodied in a person. So when you come to Jesus... The Gospel of John is presenting him as, as what he is for us and how he fixes our problem and fulfills our need for a savior. And the emphasis of the Gospel of John is the signs of Jesus in connection with his identity. So, for example, he creates the bread, he multiplies the loaves by the sea, and he says, I am the bread of life. So he'll do a miracle to get people's mind thinking about bread, 
And then he'll say, that satisfied you for now, but, but I am the bread of life. John is full of all sorts of I am statements. Jesus using metaphors and parables and miraculous signs to show us how he is the better version of that and help us understand. Another example, he raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And after seeing that amazing temporary resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. You saw Lazarus raise again for now, but he's going to die again. But whoever comes to me will never die. He will live forever, even though he died. So that's the Gospel of John. And all of these Gospels are culminating into the new covenant, which we were expecting, especially from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So somebody go to Matthew 26 and read 26 to 28, please. Matthew 26, 26 to 28. Thank you, Jason. So that's Jesus Christ instituting the Lord's Supper. That's actually what we're going to receive and celebrate today. And when we receive that, we need to remember when Jesus gave this originally, he's telling the apostles who were with him at this supper, I'm instituting this covenant now. This new covenant that you were expecting, I'm here to bring it about, and I'm going to bring it about by the sacrifice of my body and by the sacrifice of my blood and by my death for the forgiveness of many. This is the new covenant. It's come now, and this is how it's going to happen. So what we're going to do now is we're going to break off into three groups. I'll divvy you guys up. And group one is going to read Psalm 110 and Luke 22, the verses there. Group two, their sets of verses, and group three, their sets of verses. And what I want you guys to do is read the Old Testament passage first, excuse me, and then read the New Testament passage after you've read the Old Testament passage and come up with an answer what promise from the Old Testament is this New Testament passage fulfilling and how is it fulfilling it? So in your passage, what promise am I seeing from the Old Testament that this New Testament passage is saying Jesus fulfills and how is he fulfilling it? How is he bringing about this new covenant with God's people, uh, fulfilling the promises of what was expected by Scripture? So I'll go like this. I'll go you guys and Mr. Harkness and the rest of that side of the room can be a group. And then Zane and everybody else left in this row can be a group. And then everybody over here can be a group. You guys got that? You good? Perfect. And then, oh, so you'll be group one. So you'll have Psalm 110. The middle will be group two. You'll have Jeremiah. And you guys will be group three. You'll have Ezekiel and John. Alrighty, are we mostly ready to get going again? Have you guys wrung these passages dry and got every drop of everything there is to realize in them out? I can give you two more minutes if you need. Just kidding. Okay, we're going to get going again here. So we'll start with 
Group one, what did you guys come up with? Right. That's really good, thanks. And I heard somebody in your group say something about the connection from the right hand of God. Did I hear somebody saying that? What was said about that? <laughs> right, so this... Right, so the son of God character from Psalm 110, and that's how the Jews saw kings at the time, as the sons of God. Now it's embodied in the son of God, who is our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And you can find that other places about Jesus in the New Testament. And Psalm 110 starts off that he's at the right hand of God. And when Jesus is at his lowest, when he's being tried, right, and accused, and they say, who are you? Are you this guy? And he says, yeah, and you'll see me at the right hand of God. I'm that, I'm that son of God. I'm that ruler from Psalm 110. And it doesn't look like it now, but that's who I am. And so Jesus is fulfilling this expectation of this Davidic king, the son of God, to rule over God's house forever, over God's people forever. And to do that, he had to die. So that's why he's being tried right now. And he had to make substitute for the people of God and cleanse them and bring them back in a relationship with them. And now he reigns over all of us. I mean, even the fact that we're sitting here today in Saskatchewan, thousands and thousands of kilometers away from where this began, it, in the Old Testament, it was such an exclusive thing. And even the Jews couldn't follow the covenant. Even the Jews weren't God's people very well. How could you imagine Gentiles over the whole world at a Bible study Sunday morning? So Jesus has fulfilled that in Luke, and he's fulfilled it right now. Thank you, guys. Second group, what did you guys have? Um, we had uh, Jeremiah 31, and we were talking about so the promise there talks about for us to forgive their iniquity, that will remember their sin no more, and to do the covenant. So we just noticed that as we were reading through the passage we read before, Matthew 26, it talks about you know, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Right, and how's Jesus saying he's going to do that with the communion? What's that? Like he's showing that he's going to, he has to die to do that, right? That's why he's here, he's going to die. And so that God's people can have total forgiveness of sin. Because all the Jews are probably thinking, they were probably thinking there'd just be a better temple with better sacrifices. And that's true, but that's in the person of Christ. So he's saying, I'm here to lay my life down. 
uh, this meal represents what I'm about to do for you with my life, and that's how this new covenant will come in. That's how you'll have forgiveness of sins. Right? Thanks, guys. Third group. Right. Right, right. Yeah, that's perfect. Thanks, Jason. And like he says in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Well, nobody else before could keep Jesus' word or God's word, right? Now, now shown in Jesus. How are we going to keep it? And so there's an immediate connection. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments, you'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and dwell with him. I think I'm reading the wrong... Yep, I am. <laughs> uh, but anyway, in the passage that you guys were in, Jesus does say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then he immediately talks about the reception of the Holy Spirit, how we're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And those things are talked about back to back on purpose. We need the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus' commandments, right? This is the, this is the life poured out on the, on the dead bones from Ezekiel uh, 36 and 37. This is the power that's going to empower us to keep God's law at an even higher standard that Jesus set in the Gospels. Perfect. Thanks so much, guys. That's all I have for you today. And I really am encouraged by your answers.